Thank you very much. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Mike. Thank you all for being here. The uh, book outside is, as Paul noted, called The Sumter Gambit, How the Left is Trying to Foment a Civil War. And uh, one thing that I have learned over the last few months since it's been out is that very few people know how to pronounce foment. <laughs> but, and you'd think, you know, radio hosts, and they're talking about fermenting a civil war. <laughs> Think, what would that taste like? My goodness. Can you imagine the brew? But uh, <clears throat> when it comes to a civil war, that is exactly what the left is trying to do. They are trying to create a win-win situation for themselves. And the win-win situation goes like this. Push the craziest, most extreme, most insane things onto the public. Like who five or ten years ago would have thought, oh, pretty soon there'll be drag queens in first grade classes and you're a bigot and a hate monger if you think there's something wrong with that. And if you object, then you are branded an insurrectionist and an FBI investigation is opened up against you and who knows what kind of misery would follow that. So, it's a win-win situation for the left. Either we sit back and we take all this, their radical social and cultural agenda, and their radical political agenda, or else if we fight back, then they will use that as confirmation of their false claim that the right doesn't want a constitutional republic and wants to destroy it and create some kind of dictatorship and crack down on the insurrectionists. So either way they win, whether we act or whether we just sit back and accept it. Now that's the dilemma that they're trying to create. There are all manner of ways in which it might not work out for them. But it's useful in this time when we have never been closer since the 1850s and the beginning of the 1860s to a civil war. It's useful to look back at how the first civil war began and some aspects of it in order to understand where we are now. The Civil War in the first place, if you remember from history, if they taught you this, yeah, they probably taught you this, they taught us this, but the, the younger children don't know anything about any of this. The Civil War began because of a showdown where one side blinked. It might have been avoidable but both sides were trying to make the other side start the war. And so they could then portray the other side as the aggressor. What happened was various states of the Union, starting with South Carolina, voted to leave the Union. Now, when that happened, did the federal troops pick up and leave those states? No, they became Confederate troops. Almost everybody was in favor in the states that left of leaving and so the military, the, the, the Confederate Army was formed of Union troops who were in the South who followed the states into secession. In Charleston, South Carolina, in the harbor, there was a fort 
and the state of South Carolina, Fort Sumter, and the state of South Carolina voted to secede. In Fort Sumter, the general in command of the fort was named Robert Anderson, and he was from Kentucky, which was a border state. There were some people in Kentucky who were favoring the South and some who favored the North. Anderson favored the North, so he did not have his troops become Confederate troops and the fort become a Confederate fort. It remained a fort in the hands of the government in Washington. Now this created an awkward situation because it used to be when it was all one big happy family, the people in the fort, if they needed provisions, would get in a boat and go over to Charleston and buy what they needed. But now they couldn't do that because Charleston was a foreign country that claimed the fort. So it became a standoff. The South made it very clear to the new president, Abraham Lincoln, if you send troops, send a boat to give supplies to the troops in the fort, we will consider that an act of war because the fort belongs to us. And Lincoln thought, okay, so I can sit back and take it and let them take the fort because they'll starve out the, the troops that are there. Or I can resupply the fort and a war may start. But he decided to resupply the fort because the war would only start if the South fired when he resupplied it. Meanwhile, the South had the same kind of dilemma. They either let them supply the fort and thus acknowledge that it wasn't really theirs at all and that their claim to have seceded was hollow, or they fire on the fort and start the war. So of course they fired on the fort, they started the war. And so then Lincoln could say for four years, we didn't want this war, they fired on us. But he couldn't let them go either because of the fact that it was an ins a real insurrection, not a January 6th insurrection. And he had the responsibility as president to put down an insurrection. So both sides were trying to outmaneuver the other in the same way. And we see the left playing the same kind of game today that they're trying to maneuver us into a situation where we either sit back and take it, or if we fight back, then they use that against us. If it comes to a civil war, though, it would be much worse than the first one. And we can all hope that it won't. Because the fact is that in those days, there was one very good fact in all the terrible things that happened at that time, and that was that there was a geographical division between the two areas of the country that were so at odds with each other. The, the, the pro-slavery people were all in the southern states and the anti-slavery people were in the northern states and so it was very neat. James Buchanan, the president before Lincoln, as a matter of fact, was willing to let the South go and become a separate country and make a clean break. And that would have been the end of it. Probably would have led to a number of other problems, but that's another story. Now. In the present period, there's no such geographical distinction. You are living testimony to that because you're here tonight. You are generally then probably on the conservative side of the spectrum. You probably don't think very much of Gavin Newsom or Joe Biden. And yet the people who do 
or at least seem to, they, they are very much in charge in California. So what happens? If there's a civil war, California goes with the left side, and then what do you all do? And what we're looking at, actually, is that if there is civil war in the United States, as I hope there never will be, then it would be more like the Liberian Civil War, the civil war in the West African country of Liberia in the 1990s, than it would be like the American Civil War in 1861. The Liberian Civil War was extremely bloody, and it was neighborhood to neighborhood, street to street, house to house. And that's what it would be if it ever came to that. We can hope it will never come to that, but unfortunately I have to give you more bad news, and that is that the divisions in American society now are much greater than they were in 1861. In 1861, Abraham Lincoln could appeal, and he did several times, to the Christian Bible and to Christian principles because he knew that the vast majority of people in the South and the vast majority of people in the North shared that perspective. And so even in his, in his magnificent, it's a, it's a rhetorical masterpiece, his second inaugural address. If you're not familiar with it, you should go back and read it. It's, it's one of the greatest speeches ever given by anyone, just in terms of rhetoric. But he can't resist giving a little dig to the defeated South at that point and said that uh, whether it's really reasonable to think that a just God would want some people to live by the sweat of the brow of other people while they sit back. This is something that uh, can be discussed. But he knew that that was a valid point for him to make because they both had the same worldview, they both had the same framework. Both the North and the South were generally Protestant Christians and they looked at the world in the same way. Nowadays, that's not remotely true. You have Jews and Christians on the right, Jews and Christians on the left, and the biggest divide is not between Judaism and Christianity or between religion and atheism, it's between the right and the left. And you have right-wing and left-wing believers in all the religious traditions, with one possible exception in Islam. That's another story too, but I've discussed that one enough. The Division, if it came to it today, it would be much wider. And there would be, it would be a lot harder for a president of the stature of Lincoln, if we ever have one, to be able to find anything common on which to appeal. We're talking about people with radically different values, with a radically different view of the world. And radically different values, I think, is nowhere clearer than in the transgender controversy, where one side is saying, you are going to drive children to suicide. You are monsters who are not letting people be who they really are. And you don't care how many of these children die. And the other side says, you're the monsters that are mutilating young people and making them think that a life after this kind of mutilation and a life of dependency on pharmaceuticals and being at war with every cell in their body is the way to become their true selves. 
how can those two positions be possibly reconciled? That's an, as, as William Seward, who was running for president in 1860 and was the front runner, but was su surprisingly defeated for the Republican nomination by Abraham Lincoln, he said it was an irrepressible conflict between the North and the South. And if that, if that was, this is 10 times more of an irrepressible conflict. After the war, however, the, civil, the first Civil War, there was reconciliation. And again, in that great speech, the second inaugural address of Abraham Lincoln, he said that we will bind up the nation's wounds with malice toward none, with charity to all. You have to understand, this is while the war is still going on. It's almost over. It's very clear the South is defeated. But, and, and actually Grant and Lee have already signed uh, the, the surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia, but there are other places where the fighting is still going on. And there are people who are out for revenge, who were baying for the head of Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee and the others, and Lincoln is saying, with malice toward none and charity to all. It was an extraordinary thing to say, really, after a war. And it was in that same spirit that the famous and controversial Confederate statues and, con and military bases named for Confederate generals came about. You'll be happy to know, of course, if you don't know already, that a national commission has determined that uh, any, anything involved with the US military, any forts or any statues on military property of Confederates the forts will be renamed, the statues will be removed. We're going to spend millions of dollars to do this over the next few years. And people are saying that these guys who glorify, glorified slavery and led us into a bloody war to glorify slavery, to preserve slavery, they don't deserve to be named, to have military bases named after them and to have statues and so on. But nobody ever seems to stop and ask, why are those statues there in the first place? Why were those forts named for Bragg and Lee and Maxey and all the rest of them? Why did these Confederate generals get this honor of all these things being named for them? The reason was actually national reconciliation. And it came from a more mature and complex understanding of human nature than most people have today. And I see this in young people all the time. And this is what they're taught in the schools. That Robert E. Lee, oh, he fought for the South. He owned slaves. Oh, he was evil. Period. 100%. Black or white, that's it. That kind of point of view actually prevailed at the time that the war was ending. And this is what Lincoln was arguing against. Do you know, uh, have you ever, anybody ever been to Arlington National Cemetery? Yeah, a lot of people where, where uh, the military has the uh, graves of some of the great generals, some of the great uh, political figures of, the, of, the American, of American history. And of course, so many soldiers are buried there. Do you know that it's Robert E. Lee's front yard? It was taken from him at the end of the Civil War as an act of vengeance. 
that he had led the South into this, led the South in this war, they were now going to put the graves of all the soldiers on his front lawn and make it a cemetery and rub it in. And that is, of course, the spirit that prevails today. That there's no good in any of this. But when in the 1930s and 1940s, the American government actually agreed to name Fort Bragg, Fort Bragg, and Fort Hood, Fort Hood, and all the rest of them after Confederate generals. They were not doing it because they were racists and loved slavery. That's the line now, that all this was really because these people secretly wanted the South to win, and they hated blacks, and so they wanted to name these, these, these monuments and forts after these Confederates because they were Confederate sympathizers. That is not the case. That's not what happened. In many cases, the impetus for these names came from people in the North. These things were done because in those days, people understood that you could have a general like Robert E. Lee and he could have many great noble qualities of courage and dignity and heroism and still be a flawed human being. If you want to have a statue of an unflawed human being, you're not going to, you can't have any statues. And ultimately, if you want to play the cancel game, you're going to cancel everybody. Because everyone has various flaws. And this was known in the days when the statues went up. And it was understood that they could say, we can praise the good qualities of these people without affirming that that means that we think they were right about the war or about slavery. And this will bring the nation together. Now, of course, what they're doing now in tearing them all down is trying to tear the nation apart. Not just by tarring these people as 100% evil because they fought for this cause that was fighting for what is inarguably an evil, but also because then they can make us all ashamed of our culture and heritage in general. Whether you are from the north or from the south or whether your family came here after the war and you had nothing to do with it whatsoever. It's part of American history. It's part of who we are as Americans. And the reconciliation that is manifested in the statues is part of who we are as Americans. And so to tear it all down is to say, no, to be an American, it's a bad thing in itself. It's evil in itself. And you should have nothing to think of in your past and your cultural and political national heritage other than shame. Because there is no good in America. And once they have taught a whole generation about that, then who's going to want to defend the United States if it were attacked? And so it's a, very, it's, a, it's a very clever scheme. You've got to give them credit. They've thought it all out very carefully, planned it all out with incredible precision. But the idea is now widespread among young people that America is some uniquely evil entity when actually America has been a uniquely remarkable 
beacon of human rights in the world. This is why those of us who are the children of immigrants came here, or why our families came here. Because of what America is. So the idea, ultimately, is to make America more easy to tear down. And this, of course, is not just limited to Confederates. I started with the Confederates because nobody really wants to defend them. We have all internalized to such a degree the idea that, well, you know, if, if you defend those guys, then you must be a racist, or you must be like pro-slavery even. And so you, lose, you cut the moral ground out from under yourself. But that's actually where we should fight. One of the arenas in which we should fight. Because it carries so much significance for our national history in terms of the national reconciliation and the possibility of reconciliation and the complexity of human experience that means that even if we have a hero, we might understand that the hero is flawed. That's just the way the world is. But he's still a hero for these various, way, various reasons. The goal, of course, is to replace all these people with their own heroes. And so after a while, you know, the statues of George Floyd and the statues of, uh, who knows, Che Guevara and the rest of them, they're, they're going to be around to replace the statues that are torn down. But as I was saying, it's not just the Confederates. If you go to Monticello now, Thomas Jefferson's home in Northern Virginia, or James Madison's Montpelier, also in Northern Virginia, you're not going to get... You, you, unless you try maybe turn off everything they're telling you and read up yourself before you go and don't read the signs and don't follow the guided tours, you're not going to get Jefferson and Madison. You're going to get, this was a slave owner's house and here's where the slaves lived and this is how the slaves suffered and this is why the slaves suffered because this rich white man was over here and he wrote this racist constitution that enshrined slavery. And so you come out of that thinking, wow, this was a very bad guy. We should torch this place down. And that's the idea. Not to torch Monticello, although I'm sure that'll come eventually, but to torch the United States. To destroy it from within by weakening its foundations. And weakening its foundations by making people despise the people who created them. And so this is the nature of the way the Civil War actually is already being fought. And so we have to understand that when we're talking about history and the Civil War and the present day situation, uh, we should remember what Faulkner said, William Faulkner, the novelist, the past is not dead, it is not even past. And that is very true. You know, we're still really in the post-Civil War era. We're still reeling from the effects of slavery and the freeing of the slaves and everything else. But it's extraordinarily important that we not allow the left to appropriate and rewrite the history of the United States because in doing so, they are trying to fulfill the adage of Lenin, he who controls the past controls the future. If they can make our past evil, 
then they can eradicate their foes and have a free hand. Now, all this I understand is uh, a little bit of a, a little bit bleak. Um, I acknowledge that. And so I thought that I would end on a, uh, an encouraging note. <laughs> and the encouraging note is this. You ready? Robert F. Kennedy, Jr. Now, why do I say that? I'm sure that uh, he and I have, and probably all of us in this room, have a great many serious political disagreements with him. But at the same time, he demonstrates, he's a wonderful illustration of the fact that history is unpredictable and that it's full of surprises, wonderful surprises sometimes. And he's the latest in a string of things that I think that the very powerful and very careful and very strategic leftist cabal, they didn't count on. One was, the first was Brexit. The, the uh, people in England and Great Britain voting to leave the European Union. And that's still playing out. That's, that too is another story, but it was a tremendous blow against the globalist, socialist, internationalist mega government that they want to create. Second, of course, was Donald Trump. Now, Donald Trump, you know, uh, I should publish a poll of what I think of Donald Trump every day, and it would be going up and down like this. Um, and so I, I don't want to say, I don't want to get, in, get into the weeds too much about whether Donald Trump is great or not, or how great, or whether he should cut out picking on the greatest governor in the country or whatever else. But the thing is that nobody expected Donald Trump. Nobody thought, oh, this billionaire playboy real estate guy from New York is going to reveal the nature and the extent of this leftist cabal that controls so much. That, I mean, did we know that before? I don't know if many of us, maybe Joyce knew, but very few people knew before Donald Trump became president just how deep the left's control went and how much we were in this thrall of a bureaucratic oligarchy rather than actually having a constitutional republic. But now it's all out in the open. Even in his failures, he smoked them out, you know, because they were so avid to destroy him and still are. They had to reveal themselves in various ways. So, you know, when he became president, I was naive. I thought, oh, he'll implement his agenda now. I didn't realize there was going to be this whole entrenched bureaucracy of leftists trying to stop him. But now we know. Now we know who's really running things. And so we can proceed accordingly. And their hegemony is not secure. And now the latest surprise is this member of the most celebrated political family in the country, far leftists, who did more damage to the United States over the last few years than Ted Kennedy, his, his uncle. And he himself has been a great advocate for the climate change hoax and for any number of other things. And yet now, here he is. I don't think he's going to be, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think he's going to be the Democratic nominee. I think they're going to try everything they can to stop him from getting widely uh, known. 
but he's challenging the whole establishment in ways that I'm sure nobody expected. And you know, everybody says, well, he's spreading debunked conspiracy theories about vaccines. I read that in every story about him. And I think, well, you know, I might have taken that a lot more seriously before this COVID vaccine. And they said, you know, it, we were told, it wasn't that long ago, you remember, you'd get this one shot and you won't get COVID, boom. And then it was two shots and three shots, four shots, five shots, regular boosters, and you'll still get COVID, but it won't be as bad. Well, it may be as bad, but you won't die. Well, you'll die, but you'll go to heaven. <laughs> and they keep moving the thing back. It's... Uh, it's, it's, it's appalling, so I think maybe he's got a point. I don't know. <laughs> and above all, he said when he, was, when he was announcing his candidacy that he wants to challenge the state and corporate power that are working together. And I thought, that's exactly it. Nobody's talking about that. I thought I was the only one who was talking about that. RFK, are you listening? Uh, <laughs> Really, seriously, in the book, I talk about fascism in the United States. Fascism is, you know, communism is ownership, state ownership of the means of production. Fascism, they don't have state ownership of the means of production. The state doesn't own the means of production. They're still in private hands. But the state tells the means of production what to do. That's fascism. And what is that but Joe Biden's administration working with Twitter, working with the other social media giants to censor dissidents about COVID and everything else? And what is that but Joe Biden saying that his opponent is the greatest threat to the republic? That's the way fascists talk. So he's, Robert F. Kennedy is talking about this. And this is the conversation that we need to have in America. Maybe we'll have it now. So, we need to know where we are in order to get where we need to be. And that can be disturbing, and the situation can be bleak. But remember that history is full of surprises, and that good things can come from all manner of unlikely sources. Uh, I'm not saying that Kennedy is going to get us out of all this, but he's just an indication that the road to victory is not assured for the left, and they may find all kinds of bumps in the road that they didn't expect. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Mike's coming through with the microphone. Uh, that's why they call him Mike. Mike, right. So uh, I agree with you 100% that history teaches us that we don't learn from history. Okay, and uh, I'm also very glad that at the end that you said there is a glimmer of hope because I'm an optimist. Uh, what I wanted to ask you is, besides uh, talking about the fascism and the communist, I think there is another thing that we need to bring into the uh, equation is the outside source influence that exert enormous pressure 
to divide the United States. What is your thought about the geopolitical situation now and how the world is kind of changing because of it? I'm, I'm sorry, I, didn't, I don't think I caught exactly the outside source. Yes, like geopolitical, uh, you know, like you know, Russia and China and India aligning themselves. Oh, well, sure. There are all kinds of realignments going on because it looks as if America's in decline, very simply. And these people can see it as well as we can. And so they think America is no longer the world power and we have to adjust to the new realities. And so there are accords with China, Saudi Arabia, making the accord with Iran at the behest of China. This is all part of the global realignment and it's going to continue, certainly. Um, so, I'm not really sure what to say about that, actually. The, uh, it's unlikely to be reversed uh, because what Joe Biden has done, well, not really Joe, but the people who run Joe Biden, has, what they've done over the last couple of years is so severe that the damage is going to take a long time to sort out. And so it may be that America will have a diminished position on the global stage. I don't, I don't see that being avoidable at this point. Ex hey. Exquisite as usual, Robert. Oh, that's Thank you. You know, I'm wondering, now with the perverse love affair between Marx and Muhammad, it, it exposing the two are simply the same monster wearing different garb, is it time to finally expose the, this demonic dimension of Islam and recognize it is as wicked and as evil as it's at, with its new partner with a history of mass murder throughout the centuries. I'd, just from a narrative point of view, we seem not to be discussing that. I talk about it a lot. <laughs> uh, actually, yeah, just the other day, actually, uh, I was discussing this Sunday at the uh, American Freedom Alliance conference um, that Karen Sigmund put on that was really wonderful conference. And uh, yes, it was, it was superb in every way. And uh, yeah, you're right though. I think I'm about the only person in the world that's talking about it. But yes, there's a tremendous congruence between the left and Islam. They love Islam for a reason. They don't just love Islam because they're anti-racist and they think that all Muslims are brown people. That's part of it for some maybe very simple types, but there are white Muslims and it's not just that. It's also that they're both authoritarian forces that are deeply inhumane, that operate by a reign of terror. You have every time the left comes to power, there's a reign of terror. Going back to the French Revolution, that they kill their enemies and they torture people and sometimes they do it quite arbitrarily. Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago says that they would just arrest people for nothing so that the rest of the population was terrified and never knew and was deeply afraid and always towing the line because they wanted to avoid being arrested themselves. Now, the reign of terror corresponds to Islamic law. 
Now, you, now you're going to say, oh, see, there he goes again, that Islamophobe. <laughs> Islamic law is a beautiful system for 1,400 years. It's been one of the Abrahamic religions. Anyway, uh, the Islamic law is a reign of terror. Their answer for everything, kill, maim, destroy. You, you steal something, cut off your hand. Commit adultery, stone to death. Uh, every last thing is designed to terrify you into towing the line. And so even in, in, in Islamic cultures, in Islamic countries, there's a tremendous amount of hypocrisy, like Ramadan just finished. There are so many accounts I have heard of people getting caught sneaking food during Ramadan and then they get beaten, thrashed, killed, any number of things. And it's not that they're worried about God, they're not worried about Allah seeing them, they're just worried about somebody in the next room seeing them. It's all done, it's, it's, it's virtue that is created by fear. The classical understanding of virtue in the Judeo-Christian tradition is that you, do, you choose the good because it's good. That you do what's right because you understand that it's the right thing. But in Islam, it's just you do what Allah says or else not Allah. Allah, yeah, Allah will roast you in hell, yes, and feed you molten lead and all the rest of the things that are in the Quran. But in this world you will suffer as well and the Muslims will make sure of that. So they're both reigns of terror, you see. And so they're both authoritarian systems that operate on the basis of fear. And so they have a deep kinship on that on the basis. And this is why they love each other. And why there are cracks in the leftist Islamic alliance right now because there are a lot of Muslims who think the transgender business is madness and they're very upset about it. They don't want it pushed on their children in schools. And a lot of patriots I see saying, oh see, oh this is great, now we can ally with those Muslims. Well, be very careful because it's not going to make them think any better of you. It's not going to make them discard what Islam teaches about unbelievers. But anyway, yeah, Marxism and Muhammad, very similar. Yeah, we're going to go here, then Adele up front, and then I think Gerald has a question in the back. So those will be the next three if you can get one. Yes, sir. Yes. I uh, am puzzled by the support that these small crazy minorities like sex changers and uh, other, other uh, minor issues of, of minimum value to our society get the support of the media. This is a puzzle that I cannot understand. Oh, I'll tell you very quickly. Ilhan Omar told us in a different context, it's all about the Benjamins. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, the media is paid. It is not a news source. The New York Times, CNN, there have been revelations here and again, more than one, of them being paid to promote a particular angle. And I am con I'm confident that that's just the tip of the iceberg, that these people are paid, they are told what line to follow, and they follow it. 
And the companies, the corporations fall into line because of, uh, it's a Soros-funded organization called the Human Rights Campaign. And the Human Rights Campaign is an LGBT group. And they have a uh, corporate equity index, CEI. I think it's corporate equity index. Anyway, they, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long series of things like do you have gender neutral restrooms in your, in your offices and things like that. And you get graded and corporations get graded. And if you get a low grade, then you're going to start to get boycotts and pickets and angry editorials. And so the corporations fall into line. Who gives all these Benjamins? Well, you know, must, uh, yeah, there's George Soros, of course. Everybody always mentions George Soros in these connections, but you know you can't help but see his name keep popping up. And the Human Rights Campaign is part of the Open Society Foundation, which is a Soros organization. And he seems to have unlimited money. I don't know how exactly he gets it. Operation Mockingbird. What's that? It's a CIA campaign. Well, maybe it's the CIA behind him, but I wouldn't be surprised. Susan Rice has left the Biden administration. I'm sorry? Susan Rice has left the Biden administration. Oh, Susan Rice, yeah. Supposedly to run for president. Oh, nice. So I'm thinking she puts herself out there. Biden announced today she winds up running as VP. They push him out and she becomes president. Could happen. Second possible. What about Kamala? <laughs> What do you think? <laughs> well, I think that they are very unhappy with Kamala. She didn't work out the way they expected. She's kind of an embarrassment, but you can't push her out because it would be racist and sexist. But Susan Rice. Yeah, it's hard to be equivalent. saying you're racist and sexist if Susan Rice uh, is replacing you. I don't know, it's, but I still think it would be tough. They'd have to find some reason. You part, know what? She part. wants to spend more time with her family. Possib <laughs> Possibility too. Uh, RFK with Trump. It was mentioned at the conference. Well, that would, I think that would be very fun to watch. What do you think possibility? I would, I would hope that if that happened, that Trump would resign quickly. Because, I mean, I'm sorry, Trump is low on my stock exchange right now, but maybe he'll rise up again. Trump did great things, and he changed the whole... Uh, center of the discourse and got us talking about things that the left thought had been all settled. You know, George W. Bush was all for mass migration. The Republicans, even Ronald Reagan, signed the immigration amnesty. Everybody was for mass migration. And then suddenly Donald Trump's talking about building a wall and how we have to restrict mass migration. You know, nobody was talking about this. Do you remember Congressman Tom Tancredo? And he, uh, he went to Congress, he was going to fight against mass migration and try to get border controls. And he told me that nobody wanted to talk about it on the Republican side. And that one time he got permission from the caucus to show a five-minute video of surveillance film from the border that was just people strolling in, but it just never ended. And you can imagine, five minutes you're watching people crossing the border unimpeded and illegally. That's an awful lot of people coming across and they never stopped. 
And he said that there were 200 congressmen in the room when the video started. And when, when the lights went up, there were three left. Everybody just walked out. Nobody wanted to talk about it. So Trump completely changed the discourse. And now we can talk about it again and talk about immigration as a national security issue, the strain on the economy, the crime, everything else. And so, and that's just one thing. I could go on and on about his great things, but at the same time, there's so much about what he did that unfortunately where he uh, appointed people who worked against him. I mean, there's so many, there's a long litany of people, if you read his Truth Social uh, messages, where he says, and this, this idiot, and, 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 and this jerk, and this moron, and I think, yeah, but these are people you appointed. Why did you appoint them? <laughs> anyway. But, uh, that's why, if we've had a Trump RFK ticket, I think, okay, flip it.